G'day, you're listening to the Virtual Staff Room and this is episode 33. This is not amazing. Thank you for joining us here on the Virtual Staff Room. My name is Chris Betcher. I had the great pleasure recently of being asked by Apple Australia to uh, be part of the Innovative Technologies in Schools conferences, the ITSC conferences. Uh, and in fact, I was asked to go along and give the keynote address um, at the, uh, in fact, all five of them. So there was the Gold Coast, Adelaide, uh, Sydney, Perth, and finally Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, the, the talk I was asked to give was based on uh, a blog post called This Is Not Amazing that I wrote quite a while ago. Uh, and apparently someone at Apple read it and liked it and said that would make a good theme for the keynote. So that's where that came from. But um, uh, this episode's a little bit different to most of them. Uh, normally we have an interview on the podcast here and we talk to various people about some issue in education. Uh, and in this one instead, um, I'm afraid you're stuck with me. Uh, I'm, I've actually recorded the final uh, keynote that we gave in Perth. Uh, so I beg your pardon, Melbourne. And uh, so here it is. So for your listening pleasure, this is a keynote address called This Is Not Amazing. Hello, everybody. That's better. I'll try it again. Hello, everybody. Good morning, class. Um, Hi, it's great to be here. Um, My name is Chris Bencher. I am a teacher. I work at Presbyterian Ladies College in Sydney. Um, And I'm the ICT integrator there. Uh, although I think I need to change that to like e-learning advisor or something because people are finally starting to listen to me pedagogically, not just technologically, which is really nice. Um, I have a, a little talk I want to give to you today called This Is Not Amazing. And it's based on a blog post that I wrote about six months ago now um, that stemmed from a couple of... This one day I had at school. And it's really funny. I had a couple of experiences this one day. And I, at the end of it, I went, wow, there's a lot of overlap there. And it started out by... I got a call to go and support somebody in one area of the school and they rang me and they said, we've got this thing with a spreadsheet and we don't know how to do it, can you come and help us? And I said, okay. So I, I came up and they were trying to do a mail merge. And so they were just taking a spreadsheet and a Word document and they were trying to push them together and push out some, <coughs> some forms. And when I looked, I dummied this one up, of course, this is not the actual one, but I looked at it and I went, oh, there's a bit of inconsistency here. You've got some spelling, some with capitals and some without. We should fix that before we do the merge. So I just did what... I'm sure, I'm sure many people in this room can do. Oops, sorry. Ah, press too many buttons. And, you know, you go in there with your mouse and you simply select it and you go to the find menu and you replace and so you change lowercase bright and with uppercase bright and then you go and it just fixes it all for you, right? Who's seen that before? I'm hoping most of this room. Right? And I don't know. I've been doing computer stuff for quite a while now, and that didn't strike me as anything you know that was particularly magical. And yet, the response that I got was, "Wow, that's amazing!" <laughs> and I thought about that. And I went, "Wow, it's 2010, and we're amazed that we can do a find and replace." <laughs> that's not good. And then um, later the same day, I got a, a call from someone. They said, "We're doing a video, and I've got all this footage, and I just need help to put it together." can you give me a hand? And I thought, okay, sure. So we took it over and we sucked it into iMovie and, and um, started doing the usual thing where you get your mouse and you, you know how it works. You grab the little bits of video and you drag them up into position. How many have done something like that? Okay, quite a few hands go up. Okay. And, you know, we, we just took them and dragged them up to the timeline and start to assemble our video. And, of course, they actually said the same words as the first person. They went, wow, that's amazing. And, again, I thought, it's 2010. Why are we still amazed that we can edit video? Now, I'm not saying that 
You know, kids, kids can do some great stuff with video, and kids can make amazing things with video, but the act of actually doing it shouldn't be amazing. We shouldn't, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that in 2010 we should be dazzled by that. Yeah? Interestingly, yesterday, the day before, at work I got another call to go and help someone with a spreadsheet problem, and it was very urgent. Come down and see us immediately, and I went down there and I said, um, we don't know how to do this. What do you want to do? Oh, we've got this number in this cell and we have to add it to this number in this cell. <laughs> and I went, are you serious? And they, oh, yeah. It's really hard to say that without sounding insulting, but um, yeah, they, they said, we've never seen that before. And, and, and after I showed them, guess what they said? <laughs> yes, that's amazing. So when you look at what the word amazing actually means, it means this idea of being astounded and surprised and, you know, it's magical and it's you know, stupendous and spectacular and phenomenal and extraordinary and, like... Dudes, <laughs> adding two numbers in a spreadsheet is not amazing, or at least it shouldn't be. And I, what concerns me about that is if as teachers, and I'm not saying it's anyone in this room, of course, but if as teachers we are at a technological literacy level where we think adding two numbers in a spreadsheet is amazing, then I'm just concerned at what that does for our expectation of what we ask our kids to do. Now, this is a, a PowerPoint presentation that some year, I don't know, three or four students, I think, did this. And the task was probably something as simple as make a PowerPoint about the first fleet, which bothers me because there's no big question, there's no enduring understanding, there's no real you know, foundation to that other than make a PowerPoint. And we're really impressed because it was a PowerPoint. We did it on a computer. Isn't that amazing? I just want to take you through a couple of slides. So this is about where the first fleet went. Well, we were apparently the prisons were full in England, so this is where the first fleet came from. And there's a list of the ships. We got that off the internet. And here's a, a bit of a thing when we probably got that off the internet as well. And there's a couple of pictures there. No idea why they're there, but we put them in. And then 78 May 17. Not quite sure what that's saying. <laughs> I might need a bit of an edit there, but um, that's okay. It was done on a computer. And uh, then, of course, the girl who did this really liked horses. <laughs> and I have no idea. <laughs> but if I was editing this, I would probably put a capital C for Canary and leave the capital I for Ireland, as opposed to this slide, which a capital C for Canary and a lowercase I for Ireland, but I'm just pedantic about grammar. Uh, but there is more horses. And then, of course, there is more horses. And then, of course, there is... Uh, a little interactive map, which I think took about three lessons to do, where you click on the button and the ship sails around the dotted line there. Three lessons. Um, and I'm not sure what the learning was there in terms of the first fleet. They might have learned something about making a PowerPoint slide, but I don't know what the three lessons worth. Um, but there is horses in every port. <laughs> and finally, we thank you with some horses. Now, I have heard teachers, and I'm sure there are many people in this room who have heard teachers say things like, you should see the PowerPoints my kids have done. They're amazing. And they're only amazing because they were done on a computer. Right? And to some people's minds, because it's done on a computer, it's amazing. In fact, the standard of the work's actually pretty low. The standard of the learning's actually almost non-existent. And the standard, of what the, the standard of what they came away with is, I think, probably not what the teacher really wanted. But it was okay. We did it on a computer. It was amazing. So, what I don't want you to hear from this is, you know, that I don't think it's, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm dissing on this idea of amazing, because I'm not. A sense of amazement is absolutely a wonderful thing to have. And as teachers, I think we have to go into that classroom every day being 
ready to be amazed by what our kids can do because they're, you know, they're incredible little people who just do, can do some incredible things. Um, but the danger, I think, in, in seeing where we see that technological bar is, uh, I think Michelangelo sums it up really well, he says the greatest danger is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it's too low and we reach it. And when you go into a classroom with a low expectation because you're dazzled by anything that simply because it can be done on a computer, I think we set our bar very low. And I think what ends up happening is we end up applauding that when, in fact, kids are probably capable of that. And so, you know, and I won't do the poll here, but just quick show of hands. Like, how many of you have ever had kids do work that you absolutely blown away by, that you just went, how on earth... Right? I think if you've been teaching long enough, that eventually happens, right? So, this idea of being amazing, I'm just going to challenge you for this couple of days. As you work through the stuff you do today, and you'll do some workshops later, and you'll go and learn a bunch of skills, and then tomorrow you'll bring them, and you will actually do some work, where hopefully you get to be student for a while, and you get to feel what it's like to go back to being a learner rather than just always the teacher. Um, but I want you to think about the word not as being amazing, but as ambitious. Now, I was really lucky a couple of weeks ago, I, I was fortunate to have a chat with a guy called Professor Stephen Heppel, who some of you might have heard of. And, and I, I said, to, we were talking about projects that kids do that are interesting, engaging, <coughs> fascinating, amazing projects. And we were talking about what is the teacher's role? What, what do you actually bring to the table to get the best out of kids when they're working with technology? And he said that... Uh, I like what he said. He said the, goal of the, the role of the teacher is to actually give students a sense of ambition even when they don't realise they have it themselves. That you actually are an expectation setter and an ambition setter for your kids. That your role really becomes in setting a bar that's high enough and maybe a little bit higher to push your kids to be great. And I really like that. So this idea of ambitiousness, um, where things become difficult, exacting, demanding and so on, and so the kids rise to them. I once had a student say to me he really thought that the best kind of learning was when it was hard fun. I think that's a great term, hard fun. You know, when it, it has to be hard. Kids don't really want it to be easy. They don't want it to be just a pushover. They actually want it to be a challenge, but it also has to be fun. So, um, there's a little spreadsheet, uh, a, a flowchart up there that I just found online. But I think it sums up how kids learn with technology. So you look at that and you start and you say, well, we could find a menu item which looks like it does what we want it to do and we can click it and then we can say, did it work? Well, if it didn't work, well, let's, let's, let's uh, try something else. Um, let's pick a different button and click that one. And if that doesn't work, well, we'll try a different button. And then if we try them all, well, we might Google for something and see if that can help us. And if that doesn't work, well, if we try it for over a half an hour or so, we might ask someone for help. And it's this fearlessness that kids bring to the process of learning. How many have found this? That that's the way that kids actually approach tasks on a computer. Yeah? And it's not... And I think what that really highlights is the fact that you as the adult and them as the student bring two really quite different dynamics to a classroom. What you bring as an adult is this sense of having the bigger picture and being able to push your kids when they're not when they don't know they need to be pushed, that uh, you're setting the sense of ambition for them so that 
You're always forcing your kids on to just be that little bit greater than they already are. And their job is to be the fearless explorers and to, you know, to, ex- to try things and to experiment with things and to, to, uh, to take the challenges you set for them and figure out how to make them real. And one of the traps I think we fall into a little bit as teachers is this feeling that we need to have all the answers before we actually go in and, and, and work with the kids, that we need to know how to do it ourselves. And often we don't. I think we really need, do need to know what's possible because otherwise how do we give them the sense of ambition? So we certainly need to know what's out there and what's around and what, what they, they might be capable of and to find interesting things for them to work on. But in terms of actually understanding it and being able to do it ourselves, I don't know. I don't think that's really necessary. How many would agree with that? Yeah? A couple of hands go up. It's good. Uh, I am just going to quickly whiz through a couple of little um, projects uh, and I, these are all things that I've actually done with my kids and I'm not holding them up as the high watermark of achievement or anything like that. It's just that if they're things that I've done with my kids, I can tell you the backstory. And the backstory is often the most interesting part. Okay? Just looking at the end result doesn't often tell you much. So I can't tell you the backstory on things that I haven't worked on. So um, Scratch. How many work with Scratch? Put your hand up. <laughs> okay. Scratch is a program. It's a free program out of MIT in, in Massachusetts in the States. And it's a... Um, Programming language for kids, basically. And what I find fascinating, I'm doing this with year three through to year five at the moment. And one of the interesting things is, in order to make the... This is called a sprite, but in this case it happens to be a cat. In order to make the sprite move around the screen, you need to be able to tell it where to go. So if I want the sprite to move this way, I need to mathematically describe how how to move. Now... Once you start getting complicated, you realise that there's actually a Cartesian grid sitting behind the screen there. And so there is an X-plane and a Y-plane. So if I want the cat to wander up into this quadrant, for example, I need to know that our X might be 100 and Y might be 150 or something. So I need to put those values in. If I want the cat to move backwards, then I'm using negative numbers. I'm doing this with year three. So we're talking in year three about negative numbers, about number planes, about X and Y axes. And when you say to the math teachers at school, what age do the kids learn Cartesian graphing? And they go, oh, about year eight. And I'm going, wow, so these kids are like suddenly jumped five years of ability because they're only in year three. And again, I think it comes down to this ambitiousness idea, this, this idea of where do we set the bar and where do we expect kids can do it? Because if we don't expect kids can do beyond what maybe the system believes they can, then, you know... They, they obviously won't. Uh, there's a wonderful story, I don't know if you've heard it, and I, I wish I could find the original, because I heard it when I was at teacher's college, um, about a teacher who goes into a, a class for the, the start of the year and is given a list of the kids and some numbers next to their name, and, and she looks at the sheet and she goes, this is amazing, I've got this class that's all geniuses. Has anyone heard this story? Huh? So she's looking at the thing going, I've got this genius class. I'm going to do the most amazing things with them this year. And so she does. And, and she pushes the kids and they, they do some incredible work during the year. And towards the end of the year, the principal comes and she says, I cannot believe what you've gotten out of those kids this year. It's just astounding. She says, well, it's not really surprising, is it? Like, they're all geniuses. And the principal says, what do you mean? They're not, what do you, why are they all geniuses? Well, you gave me that shoot at the beginning of the year with their name and their IQ next to it. They're all geniuses. And the principal goes, that was their locker number. <laughs> and it's like... What you expect, you get. If you believe a student's capable of more, then very often they are. Not always, 
but very often they are. And I, that's an example there. I'm just seeing that with year three, doing work that they don't normally hit till year eight. And it's okay, they get it. I want it to go backwards. I put a negative number in front of it and it goes backwards. Um, we did some podcasting uh, last year. Um, and this is year five. Year five, we're doing some work on Antarctica. And we thought rather than just get the library books and read about Antarctica, it would be really cool to actually talk to someone who works there. So one day we got Google Earth out and we opened up Google Earth and we're spinning it around and we're looking at Antarctica from the other side of the planet. And, and I don't know if you've known, in, in Google Earth there's a little checkbox you can turn on and it turns on a YouTube layer. And suddenly you can see all these YouTube videos geolocated all over the, the place. And so we went, oh, let's click on that one. So we watched it and it came up and... And it turns out that that was a video about life in Antarctica made by someone who lives there for eight months of the year. And there was a link on that video to their blog. So we went to their blog and we had a look there. And on their blog, there was an email address. So we wrote to this guy and said, is there any chance you could come and talk to our kids? And he said, guess what? Yes. He said, of course I can do that. So we ended up Skyping in our three year five classrooms and this guy in Antarctica. And we hooked them all up for this Skype call and we recorded it. And the kids had questions prepared, you know. Are there any penguins where you live? And all sorts of questions like that. Yeah, there were some good questions too. Um, and we recorded the 25-minute phone call. And then the kids had to... We divided the kids up into groups and they had to do things like one group did explorers, another group did you know, flora and fauna, another one did, um, I don't know, weather, whatever. There's like six or seven different topics. But... The 25-minute phone call that we made, we actually had covered a lot of those topics in the phone call. So when the kids made their podcasts, part of the task for them was to go through that recording and pick out the bits that were relevant and somehow embed them into their video. And they got really creative about it. It was like you know, two kids were shivering in a cave and they had the sound effect of the wind whistling past, going, oh, I can't believe it, we're lost. Oh, what are we ever going to do? You know, knock, knock, knock on the door and in comes this guy who they'd interviewed, you know. And so... Really in innovative approaches to, uh, to the way they learned about Antarctica by actually connecting with it. Um, this uh, was a shot, actually, it wasn't the specific shot, this is just a generic shot. But I had a student called David who was in year 10 um, at a school I used to teach at. And David was a very special needs kid. Da David, was, um, David was not your average kid, uh, he was probably a straight E student. And most teachers believe that David wouldn't really amount to a lot. Um, and that was a shame. Because when we got to this part of the course where uh, someone told me once it's good to differentiate, so I tried to take it to the extreme one, one time and I just went, this term we're going to work on whatever you're interested in. Write yourself a project and then document how you do it and then summarise it and then, you know, evaluate it at the end, but basically work on whatever you want to interest in. David was a gamer. David loved this game called Jedi Knight. It was a Star Wars thing where you run around and you know, stick lightsabers into people. And David figured out that there was a level editor that you could download from the internet. Now, this is going back a few years. This is going back 10 years. Right? So this is what was cutting edge at the time, I guess. David downloaded the editor and built himself a level. In fact, he built himself several levels. And they were the most complex, labyrinth, elaborate kind of levels you could imagine, with hidden doorways and trapdoors and all sorts of things in it. and um, All of those textures you see there, like the texture on the ground, you've got to learn Photoshop skills in order to create those so you can then map them onto the 3D world. So there's a lot of stuff involved in creating a game level. 
the really neat thing was at the end of this unit of work, what he produced was so impressive, he actually loaded it to the internet and, and gamers from all around the world were coming in and playing his, his levels and giving him this incredible feedback, going, dude, these are awesome levels. So he, it was the first time in a long time that he'd actually felt like he was achieving something. And as a little reward, we, we set the whole classroom up as a, as a LAN party and we had the whole, everyone in school was playing David's game. So like, there's a kid, straight A student, you know, but feeling like he actually achieved something. And could I do that? No way. Can I inspire him to do that? I hope so, because that's my job. Um, just quickly, this one is uh, a project that I did again a number of years ago with um, school in Sydney, school in Chicago, school in Tokyo. And it was a novel. Um, Seymour Papert, one of the godfathers of technology and education, once had a list of 20 things you can do with a computer. And one of them was write a novel. He didn't say write a story. He didn't say write three paragraphs. He said write a novel. Right? And that's what I mean by be ambitious. Expect not just a little bit, expect a lot. So these kids wrote a novel together. It was about a 6,000-word novel. It was about um, the future. It was about a time machine that was broken, and every time the, the characters got in the time machine to go somewhere, they'd press a button, and it would take them somewhere unexpected. They would never know where they were going to end up. And when they got to that place, the only way they could get out of it was answering a, uh, like a, a quiz about what they'd learnt while they were there, and that was the only way they could get the time machine to move on to the next place. So they had to learn how to JavaScript, ran, like a random button. When you click it, it has to take you to a random web page. They had to learn how to do graphics. A lot of those graphics and drawings you can see there, we would have a student in Sydney draw it and then send it to a student in the States who would then colour it in, who would then send it to a student in Japan who would then animate it with Flash and so on. And so we had, for about an eight-month period, we had files flying around the world every day. Now, that's how pretty much how... <laughs> You know, big business really works these days. You know, people working in teams, cross-cultural teams, um, multidisciplinary teams. And I just thought that was a good example of what happens when you give kids a big enough project. And then you kind of get out of their way a little bit and just let them get on with it. Um, it's a very impressive piece of work. I taught in Canada for a little while. And uh, they gave me a business studies class. And I've never really taught business studies. And those of you who have been asked to teach subjects for which you're not trained or, or necessarily all that motivated, um, you know that sometimes it's a little bit uninspiring, sometimes. So, and I don't know if you've taught in the US or Canada, but, you know, it's a very textbook-based culture over there. And it's very much, here's the book, learn chapter seven, there'll be a test. Uh, and we got about halfway through the semester, and I just one day I came in and I said to the kids, I just can't do this anymore. How can we make this more interesting? And, of course, they all have iPods and stuff. So I said, what if we turned the rest of the book into a podcast? And I went, OK, we could do that. So their task was we broke them up into groups and gave them, I think we had 12 chapters left to do in the book, and we broke them into six groups. So each group had two chapters. And they had to produce a 10 to 15-minute podcast, which basically took all of the content from that chapter and made it interesting. And in order to do it, so there's a little snapshot there of all the 12 podcasts. And, um, I mean, one of the things, again, as a teacher, one of the things you do is not only set the bar high, but figure out how do you, how do you evaluate that? How do you assess that? 
So, for example, in this one, um, I know that's very difficult to read, but that marking rubric there was designed to reward people who went above and beyond to push them. So, for example, up here, uh, it talks about um, going outside the classroom. Example, there was a group of students learning about um, consumer finance, you know, how do you get a loan to buy a car. And so, not only did they have to take the contents of the textbook where it talked about how to get a car, car loan, but one of them said, why don't we go down to the local car dealer, which was like around the corner, and we can like interview the salesperson, and they can tell us how you buy a car. So they did. They took their little voice recorders, and they wandered down there, and they interviewed the salesperson. Another group went down to the bank across the road and interviewed the bank manager on how you set up a bank account. Another one had a father who uh, had actually invented something and held a patent. It was a little golf buggy accessory. And so interviewed Dad. And so the kids were actually going outside the classroom with their voice recorders and their iPods and stuff and bringing those things back and including them in the podcast. I don't know whether I've got a snippet here. Marketing. It is necessary for business survival in today's constantly advancing marketplace. But what is marketing and how do we use it? I'm Pat. I'm Dave. I'm John. And I'm Colleen. Welcome to Podbiz. This is our episode of marketing. So, oh, I, won't, I won't keep playing. You get the idea. Just pause that for a sec. Um, so, again, you know, like it's. If I had to summarise what a teacher's role is, it's come up with something really interesting and engaging for your kids to do, then get out of their way. And a lot of times we forget about the second bit, you know? We have to, we, I don't know about you, but I, I used to be a real micromanager. And I'd, I'd come in and say, okay, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. And seriously, I learnt that the best thing I can do as a teacher is to just get out of their way a little bit. I have to provide the environment and the tools and the inspiration for them to actually do something great, but then I have to sort of back off a bit and let them just get on with it and do it, and then come in and swoop in when they need it and provide guidance and... You know, have you thought about doing it this way? And, you know, that's what good teachers do. And I'm sure many of you do this, exactly the same thing. Um, this project... Just heard that. Um, this is a Year 12 project of a student that I taught a couple of years ago. Um, and she built it using a technique called machinima. And in case you haven't come across machinima before, basically what you do is you use a 3D game or a 3D environment, so you could do Second Life or World of Warcraft, or she used The Sims, just a 3D game, and she taught the characters how to act out the script that she had in mind. Okay. Can I just get you to push the volume? The time. I do weird things, yes. But lately, even I'm beginning to think I'm losing the plot. Losing? Plot? You might ask. Well, let me explain. I've been having a normal week. In any way, the most normal... So, essentially, uh, the way you build this is, let's say you've got an idea for a movie. You want the character to walk in and hold a teddy bear and, and you know, sit at a table and write. Well, the characters are all virtual characters. So, first of all, you have to teach them how to sit at a table and write. You have to, you have to dress them in clothes. That T-shirt that she had that said, Ford sucks, or whatever, Ford rules, whatever it said, um, yeah, you know, she was a, a motor racing fan. So she made the t-shirts in Photoshop and mapped them onto the characters' bodies. She then taught the characters how to dance or how to play the piano because they don't know innately. So you have to train the characters in the game. By the way, that's supposed to be me sitting at the desk. That's her school uniform. Again, she Photoshopped the school uniform up and mapped it all onto the body and, and taught the characters how to play it. Once you teach the characters how to act out the script you've got in mind, you then use screen capturing software to capture that 
And then you take those videos that you've captured from the screen and you bring them into an editing program like iMovie or, or Final Cut or something like that and you edit them together into a finished movie. So you're effectively making a movie but you're using virtual characters instead of real ones. There's a lot of work involved in that. Okay? And when she came to me and she said, oh, I, I want to do something for my HSC project that um, you know, is about 3D, she was interested in 3D, and then we explored this and came up with this idea of machinima, I thought that she might make one episode, maybe sort of a 10-minute episode, because I thought that was a lot of work. She made six episodes, each of about 15 minutes long. That just blew me away. And again, could I do that? No. I understand the principle of it, but I've never actually done one. Do I need to? No, because she got inspired enough to go and do it herself. And I, you know, I think the standard is pretty amazing. The, the thought about camera angles and where you view things from and how your characters behave. Awful amount of work for that. Um, I have some Year 11 students at the moment who are building an iPhone. Not, it's not an iPhone application, but there's a program called Layer, which you may or may not have seen. Uh, you can get your iPhone and you can hold it up to things and it'll overlay on the screen what those things are. So, for example, you're in Sydney visiting and you go, what's that big curvy building over there? And you hold your phone up to it and it says Opera House. Right? And as you move your phone around, it's called Augmented Reality. Well, there's, there's a Layer app that does Augmented Reality. And there's also um, a service called Buildar, Build AR, Augmented Reality, that you can go to and you can actually create your own layer. So my year 11s at the moment are building a layer of the school. That's a map of the school. They've been GPS uh, locating all the different points around the school and figuring out uh, how then to attach information and photos and videos and all sorts of things to that. With the idea being that if you were to come and visit my school and you go, I wonder what that building is over there, you can pull your iPhone out, look at it and tell you all about it. You can read the history of it. You can watch a short video. You might point it at the principal's office and up comes a video with the principal's message. Okay? Some really neat things you can do, but again, you know, just it's a matter of, as a teacher, could I do it? Maybe. Do I want to do it? No, because that's their job, right? I just have to figure out how to inspire them to do something that pushes them. The um, last example I'm going to give you is a little bit self-indulgent, but this is my daughter, and um, she's quite a talented little singer. She's 14 years old, and she got, she's part of a local singing group with the local council and she got invited to go to Japan last year except that uh, they subsidised part of it but then the, the kid had to raise the rest of the money to go so she comes home and she says dad dad I'm so excited I get to go to Japan I've said I've got to raise some money it's going to be quite expensive and I went okay what have we got to do sell chocolates and she goes no I've got a better idea we're going to do some virtual busking okay so she went to YouTube I'll let her explain it hi my name is Kate and I live in Sydney Australia I'm 13 years old and I'm a singer. I recently got into a talent program for singing run by my local council and at the end of the year in October we're going on a tour to Japan which is very cool. I'm very excited. However, it is quite expensive. So I was thinking of some ways that maybe I could raise some money for that and I thought I'd busking but then I sort of thought not a good idea um, so I thought, why don't I bust online? So that's sort of what this website's about. It's just some videos of me singing that you know you can watch and send your friends and leave a donation if you want to. So yeah, I hope you enjoy. So that's just she made a bunch of videos, 
stuck them on YouTube, went to a wiki, just linked them all together in one place on the wiki, and then put this little graphic here on a tip jar and linked it to a PayPal account. And then said, Dad, can you send out a tweet, please? <laughs> and then she contacted all her friends on Facebook and told all her friends and family and relatives and everybody else. She made 900 bucks! <laughs> I don't make 900 bucks! Right. So, you give kids a really good idea. Well, she came up with a good idea. But, you know, it's a matter of, why did she think of that? I don't know. Maybe she's seen me do a few things. Maybe she gets inspired by watching what other people do. But the point is, I didn't think of that. And it's a matter of just giving kids that little seed so they take it and they go and do something that's actually pretty, pretty impressive. So, just looking at all of those things we've sort of talked about there, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what's the common thread in all of this? And I guess there's a couple... And one is this opportunity to go beyond the perceived limits. Okay? Think of the year three kids doing scratch and dealing with Cartesian grids. You know, it's a perceived limit. It's a glass ceiling. There's no reason why they can't learn that. Um, the opportunity is to iterate, to learn and relearn. And think of that, that um, uh, flowchart that I showed you there with how kids discover stuff on a computer. They don't just go to the answer. They try it, it doesn't work. They try it, that doesn't work. I try it, it doesn't work. Oh, that works. We'll try that. <coughs> They have to have a chance to iterate. And, man, if you look at your syllabuses and your curriculums and stuff, it's ridiculous how often we don't give kids a chance to iterate. We go and learn something, we have a test on it, we move on. And we don't really give ch kids a chance to, to learn by getting it wrong, which is actually when you actually learn. You don't learn stuff by getting it right. You know, they do a test, they get 14% in it, and you go, OK, next, mark down the 14% and move on to the next topic. No! Let's figure out how to change the 14% to 70% for the next one. So, um, opportunities to follow individual passions. Think about David and his um, Jedi Knight example, you know. He did great in that because he was really passionately interested in it. Um, think about the opportunities to collaborate with others. The, um, the example of the um, novel that the kids did, working around the world with other kids. Um, opportunities to work with the real world. The, the layer project in the school where the kids are building a 3D app, not a 3D app, a, you know, an augmented reality app, um, engaging with other views. And I think that's really important. The kids realise that you know, there's always more than one way to do something by dealing, whether it's dealing with kids around the world or just looking at the way other people do stuff. The opportunities to be creative and original. And that's something I really think so much of our school system is, is lacking, is you know, giving kids opportunities to really be creative instead of just kind of, you know, do a PowerPoint presentation about horses. Um, combining media types. Fascinating. Kids love doing that. Bringing in photos and videos and writing and drawing and scanning stuff and uh, sound. Working with interesting tools. Working with layer. Year, year 11's really enjoyed that because it was something they hadn't done before. Uh, working with machinima. Something she hadn't done before. But it was interesting. And when it's interesting, it's engaging. And um, finally, opportunities for genuine assessment. You know, think about how you actually look at what kids do when it's outside the box. How do you mark that? It's hard. It's easy to just have a test and say, okay, you got 70%, but it's much harder when you see someone do something like a machinima project or a, you know, a, a, a collaborative website. How do you mark that? I don't know, but we've got to figure that out because it's important. And so that's pretty much it from me. And over the next couple of days, I just want you to really think about the goals that you set for yourself while you're here, the goals that you set for your kids when you go back to the classroom, and, and how that when people look at what you're doing with your kids in the classroom, you know, how, 
when they say, you know, that's amazing what you've got your kids to do, you know, how you can sort of smile to yourself and go, yeah, yeah, it really is amazing. So um, thank you very much. So there you go. I hope you didn't find that too self-indulgent. I just, uh, it was a really good conference, a series of conferences. And if you didn't get to any of them, I just thought you may enjoy um, catching up with that keynote. So there you go. There it is. Um, there will be other episodes coming soon. I've got a few things lined up. I know this is a pretty sporadic podcast. I was listening to the EdTech crew the other week talking about their favorite podcasts and uh, I noticed that mine was listed as the uh, somewhat irregular podcasts, uh, which I guess is fair enough. Uh, but I'm trying to pump some more episodes out and I've got a few things lined up, so we'll, uh, we'll try and get those out shortly. Um, if you uh, are interested, by the way, the, uh, the, the slides for that, uh, this, this episode, um, and the keynote slides that went along with the talk, uh, will be available on SlideShare and I'll put them also in the show notes on virtualstaffroom.net so you can wander over there and I'll stick a link to the original blog and whatever else uh, and a couple of links to the Innovative Technologies in Schools conference website. Um, if you didn't get there this year, and uh, I, well, you should have. <laughs> Hopefully, they'll run something like it again next year. I don't know that it'll be called that. Uh, I have some inside information that suggests that possibly they won't be calling it that next year, but uh, I'm sure it'll be something. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. hope to see you again on the next one. My name is Chris Betcher. You've been listening to The Virtual Staff Room. See you next time.